Welcome everybody, Andrew Halachek here for our ongoing interview series. I suppose at this point we could call it COVID-19 version. And it's really my delight to spend the next few minutes with an incredibly sensitive, compelling thinker, philosopher Zach Stein. And as usual, I will uh, read the formal introductory bio. And then uh, you will agree, I'm sure with me, that this amazing individual has some very compelling things to say about what's happening in the world today with this virus. So Zach Stein is a philosopher of education working at the interface of psychology, metaphysics, and politics. He has published two books, including Education in Time Between Worlds, along with dozens of articles. This writing was done as he worked co-founding a nonprofit and think tank, as well as teaching graduate students at Harvard and consulting with technology startups. Zach is a longtime meditator and musician and caregiver, which has shaped him more than any professional engagements. So Zach, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be with us. Um, I am very excited about talking to you about this really compelling piece that you wrote that's getting a lot of traffic. Um, COVID-19, a war broke out in heaven. And there's so much here to really um, discuss with you, but I want to say at the outset that what struck me was the extraordinary parallels with your discussion of liminality, um, these kind of threshold states, and what the Tibetans um, speak about, as you know, at least Tibetan Buddhism, is bardo principle. Uh, bardo being a, a Tibetan word means, translates as gap, transitional process or in between. And it's, it's a really compelling way to look at reality a little bit more accurately. Um, because if one in fact does take a very close look at the nature of reality, it is gappy um, all the way from the kind of mechanisms of perception itself that, that you know, cognitive neuroscientists have shown that perception itself is discrete, dis, uh, continuous, and fundamentally very porous. Um, and the nature of reality altogether is that way, whether it's quantum reality or, or just the gaps when we look at any dimension. And so I think it's a very rich time because one of the ways I'm looking at this, Zach, and this is where I think we can really meet, is that what's happening in the world now is the rug of our conventional reality has been pulled out from underneath our feet. And we have been sent flying and it's, if we relate to this situation properly, and, and that's the key, um, and this is what you write about so elegantly, Bardos provide tremendous opportunities for growth and transformation. And, and even on the classic Bardo literature, which is applied towards the end of life, they unequivocally assert that there are more opportunities for psycho-spiritual development in Bardo situations than there are in our usual kind of reified reality states. So maybe we can start, and I know it's difficult to summarize because there's so many compelling insights here, but maybe we can start with you giving us a bit of a, of, of a review, overview of this very compelling piece that you wrote. And then I excerpted some of the most um, provocative lines and sentences, paragraphs from it that um, I will see so for some very specific lines of direction. But for our listeners, talk to us a little bit about the article altogether and um, all the traffic that it's been getting. It's amazing. Congratulations. 
Oh, thank you. Um, and thank you for having me on. I, I appreciate it. I, yeah, I wrote the, I wrote the article somewhat in, in response to what I'd been seeing, uh, especially what I've been seeing come out of, uh, the mouths of spiritual teachers. Um, but also what I've been seeing just in the, in the press and the way that the pandemic was being discussed, it seemed to me was kind of, um, uh, not as compassionate and comprehensive and, um, careful as it could have been. And so I was trying to <clears throat> kind of move a little bit into a different kind of conversation about just what was happening, not a conversation about the nature of viruses and the nature of epidemiology and the nature of sanitation and contagion and all of that stuff. And, <clears throat> and then also not about the economy, and not about the, the, you know, so there was just a, a missing dimension, which I talk about in the pieces being the dimension of human development. Yeah, and so what do, you, what do you see as potentialities here, Zach? Because, you know, um, I'm sure you know Roger Walsh. You're, you're involved in the integral community. Oh. And, and Roger shared something quite interesting. We, we had this um, kind of think tank, integral think tank, a couple of weeks ago that's still going on on a weekly basis. And, and Roger said something quite compelling to me. He said that studies have shown that in times of distress, um, in times like this, we actually, uh, as a society and culture, we, we tend to regress, not progress. You know, hum Humpty Dumpty has hit the wall, and the kind of the egoic default mode network is, is to try to superglue Humpty Dumpty back together again. And, and so I think it's really important for us to throw in at the outset that um, there are avenues for potential growth and transformation here, but there's also false positivism that if we don't relate to these situations properly, in fact, that is not the general way we go. The general way is to default by the super glue things back together. So talk to us a little bit more about how we can avoid that, that trap and how you so beautifully end your piece with the return to normality is really not the proper direction for us to undertake. Right. And in a sense, it's one thing we have to, think about is that, you know, the individual, uh, is one thing and the civilization, you know, is, is another. And at the level of the individual, um, it's difficult to imagine returning into life as usual. And that's because the, the civilization itself cannot return to business as usual. <clears throat> and it, you know, we, and I think I said this in the paper, you know, we've known since 1972, that the way the world system was being run was demonstrably unsustainable and probably basically unavoidably self-terminating, which is to say we were already on a bus that was driving off a cliff. And the idea of just like, <clears throat> you know, in, in a sense, needing to slam the brakes on the bus, so now that many things have kind of ground to a halt, and of course, if you slam the brakes on a bus that's speeding, a lot of people are going to get hurt within the bus. But you could argue it's better than driving the bus completely off the cliff. So we, you know, when we do begin to apply the gas again, uh, we need to start steering the damn thing uh, instead of having it run blindly 
you know, trying to do infinite growth on a finite planet, right? Trying to colonize every last inch of the human life world and the total commodification of everything. Um, and a whole bunch of trend, you know, trends that were completely unsustainable, <clears throat> uh, not just environmentally, but also in terms of the nature of the human psyche and what the soul and relationships and families can withstand. So there was a lot that was needed to change um, before this began. And sensitive people since the 70s had been saying this, you know, limits to growth um, being one of the most famous expositions of that. Um, and more recently, of course, Extinction Rebellion and uh, Occupy Wall Street and movements that were pointing to the just kind of patently absurd uh, and again, self-terminating kind of generator functions behind the, the civilization itself. <clears throat> so what I'm saying in the article that we can't return to normal, it's not just that the individual everyday habits uh, shouldn't be reformed. It's that a lot of the basic infrastructures probably simply shouldn't be rebooted uh, as is. Uh, and in the paper, I, I point particularly at the educational systems. Yeah. Um, yeah, and you know, it's interesting when you say that, Zach, because what comes to mind is growth without direction is really one way to talk about cancer. And that is, in fact, one way to look at what's been going on um, in the world at large for, for many, many decades. And so talk us a little bit about how we can steer this direction in um, kind of trajectories that really are conducive to, to, to growth and in fact specifically how the educational system at large and also you know more phenomenologically within us can be um, altered uh, as a way to really take advantage quote unquote of what's happening to really to really hit the to the restart button because you know I, I want to share a small story with you Zach yes. when I came out of my three-year meditation retreat some 15 20 years ago at this point it, it was a space that now um, eerily similar to what's happening. In other words, when I came out of this retreat, it really was like a, a, a kind of a death for me. I mean, I, I went to this blast furnace of intensive practice um, and absolutely without question, it was a, a, a death, a bardo experience for me. And when I came out, I realized I was in a very precious space. Um, what the bardo teachings refer to as the transition into the bardo of becoming called karmic bardo becoming which translates in western terminology as kind of the habitual bardo becoming and in other words i realized i had a, a precious few months to really be concerted about mm. my actions the new habits i started it's almost like a stem cell that i had this very precious opportunity to create new habit patterns that would then obviously as t habits tend to do crystallize reify and and then start to kind of live me and so tell us more or give us some advice about how we can take better advantage of what's happening i, I know there's several questions wrapped up in what i'm saying here but talk to us a little bit more how about view strategies and implementation strategies to to um take so to speak full advantage of what's happening and really use this as opportunity for transformation. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting framing. I mean, <clears throat> and this is kind of the theme of the conversation, right? It's like the potentialities of the Bardo and the actually function of the Bardo as being that time between worlds or 
space between lives. <clears throat> and as you note, like a meditation retreat will do it. Um, death and illness will do it. Adolescent identity transformations will do it. Middle-age crises will do it. You die within your life many times. This is what you study if you're a developmental psychologist, which is what I, uh, which is what I am. So when you cease being a child and are not yet an adult, you're in this phase of adolescence, which is like a multi-year bardo of identity confusion. <laughs> and it's very important, of course, the consolidation of the adult identity at the end of adolescence. That's when you begin to steer your life, right? This is about the bus metaphor and how do you get control? And it's precisely in the bardo realms that control is relinquished for the sake of gaining control at some kind of higher order or gaining some new kind of ability to see and to steer. Um, if you can use those uh, as orienting. So in a sense, it's, you know, that's the opportunity, which is that in order to get a new kind of orientation in life, you need to lose control, which is to say die to the prior modus operandi but you'll need to find a way to grab the steering wheel again um and you know as you were saying you were feeling it there are these times when it feels like uh the decisions you're making actually matter more in consolidating the future of your life and your character um, so part of this is about bringing careful attention to every moment mm -hmm. that in fact in the state of quarantine when all the days could bleed together and you could lose orientation to space and to time in the cocoon of self-protection uh and kind of like in the dream state of the media screen time overwhelm uh <clears throat> disengaging from that and taking note of the preciousness, as you noted, taking note of the preciousness of each choice and that there's a potency in them that's new. And what's interesting about saying that is that you're actually saying, how do you treat the people closest to you? What is the very nature of the family dynamic and the love relationships that you're in? Because these are the things that are right in front of you. Um, and, <clears throat> you know, it's, I've been noting with educators that I've been talking to about the fact that, you know, before industrial schooling, right before the big factory schools, and especially before anything like a public school, uh, the household was the center of cultural and economic production, right? That everyone was at home and all the teaching and learning was happening there more or less. And a lot, if not the majority of the economic productivity, which is to say making the basic goods and services and <clears throat> And so that hasn't happened. After that period, everyone left the home. The home is vacant. The home is empty <laughs> for 12 hours a day, 10 hours a day. The kids are at school, the parents are at work, right? Uh, you're sent away from the home into the system to do this stuff, and then you come back to the home. <clears throat> we are now all thrown into a position that's almost like a rehearsal of pre-modern form, where the household itself becomes this unique locus of intergenerational transmission, teaching, learning, economic productivity, and the usual things that go on there. <clears throat> and so uh, we're just not prepared for that. <laughs> we kind of 
have adapted to a completely different style of being human, um, which uh, allows us to be much less attentive, uh, much less careful um, in the space of the home and in the space of the family than used to be. Um, so, and I wasn't planning to say this, but I guess some of the advice that I'm giving here <clears throat> about how to take advantage of this time is to uh, recognize what time it is. And it's time to be at home uh, in a new way. Um, and it's time to recognize different aspects of our lives than the ones that are usually on center stage. Like, so for example, illness and death. Um, how do we attend to these carefully when usually we're in a culture that tries to relegate them <clears throat> relegate them into some kind of um, either hidden uh, or fixable status? Um, and the fixable issue is interesting, especially with regards to death. Um, uh, and so, <clears throat> so that's another place where it's like, oh, okay, the figure and ground have shifted right? The things that are usually off stage are now on stage, center stage. Um, so you have to recognize what time it is in order to take advantage. And then this notion of the kairos, right? Which actually means opportunity. It's related to this word opportunity in ancient Greek, um, different kind of time, a time of potency. Um, so yeah, I, I actually don't have specific advice. Um, the general advice is, is to, um, uh, yeah, take the opportunity to be in life differently. Yeah, because um, yeah. it's rare you actually get to do that. You have to go on like a three-year meditation retreat to do, or you have to have some kind of like family tragedy or you know crazy event happen in order to be thrust into the liminal. And now we're all thrust in it together. Yeah, it's quite unprecedented historically, I must say. Yeah, that, I mean, that's fantastic. So many things come to mind here, my friend. One is, I'm sure you're familiar analogically with the work of Prigogine, right? And his work in chaos theory, dissipative structures. Right. But the fact that, it's, that in order for, in fact, as a student of integral theory, you know the difference between um, translation and transformation, that very often things right. really do have to come apart before they can reorganize at a higher level. And it's what my, you know, my favorite teacher, one of my favorite teachers, the radical Vijayadra Trumpa Rinpoche, master of the one-liner, once famously said, you know, chaos should be regarded as extremely good news. Right. Well, it sounds good on paper. It doesn't sound so good in reality. Um, and so what you're saying here about, about the kind of the reset to home life is, is really compelling. That's very interesting to me. It, it's, it's also, it tends to do a couple of things. I mean, one is that on, one way I look at this situation altogether, and you were alluding to this with your the kind of definition of kairos as a time of potency. Um, I look at this particular situation as kind of reality concentrate, that the usual dilutions of our distractions are, uh, you know, everything being shut down and we're being forced into isolation. Really, as you and I well know, this is basically, it's just a kind of forced level of retreat where we're really invited, if we relate to it properly and in that way, to look at things in a, in a completely new light. And for me, it, it brings the harsh, uh, you, can, you could say the nobility of, of the noble truths into stark relief, the truth of suffering, the truth of impermanence and death. 
And it's just like you're saying, Zach, that for me, what, what it does is, you know, we tend to defer our lives and live our lives on a pilot light level because of this illusion of immortality. It's what, you know, Camus so beautifully wrote about in, in the book, The Plague. I mean, The Plague is being played out right now. This masterpiece book is just being played out right now. And so in, in the Tibetan bardo teachings, as, as you well know, you know, the, the, what's called the bhava chakra, the wheel of life, is held by Yama, the Lord of Death. And we forget that, so to speak, embrace. And therefore, somewhat ironically, in, in our avoidance of, of impermanence and death, we actually dilute the experience of our very lives. It's a little bit like Samuel mm -hmm. Doctor once said, you know, um, so famously, when a man uh, realizes he's to be hanged in a fortnight, it concentrates his mind beautifully. And so to me, that's what this has done for me. And I'm, I'm, if you don't mind personally, I'd be curious to see how you are riding with this. But to me, what it does is it really just puts the, the harsh, noble truths that the Buddha articulated um, into a bold relief and, and therefore allows me to face Bardo's head on. Because usually I, I live my life in a kind of sophisticated avoidance strategy um, with especially all these weapons of mass distraction. I mean, it's the signature of the Kali Yuga, the dark age, is its insidious nature is distraction. So that's all been gone. And now we're invited slash forced to look at things, to look at what the Bardos talk about as the bright lights, which is just the bright lights of these harsh truths. So um, two things, how are you personally working with this? And um, any commentary or how does this land with you in terms of... Um, this last little passage. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, personally, I'm, I think I'm in somewhat of a unique situation because, you know, um, <clears throat> I've never, I never really speak about this publicly, um, but I will, uh, you know, I've been a caregiver to my wife for eight years oh. and uh, she had a terrible, a brain injury, an iatrogenic condition um, as a result of a pharmaceutical drug. And so I've been intensively uh, supporting her as she goes through uh, a tremendous healing process over this eight-year period. So my, my routine has been one already of <clears throat> living in the presence of extreme suffering and illness and uncertainty and living with a routine that is profoundly um, uh, meditation retreat-like in its restrictive nature um, and in the attentiveness that one needs to give um, and kind of watching her kind of miraculous, heroic um, uh, recovery. Uh, and so, yes, in a, it was, in a sense, it's like, um, everyone is more stepping into the world that I've been into for some time. Um, and of course, in the context of caring for her, I've been studying uh, civilizational collapse dynamics and um, existential risk and in conversations with people like Daniel Schmachtenberger and Jordan Hall about these things. And so, you know, and in my conversations, even with Ken Wilber and Mark Gaffney at the Center for Integral Wisdom, we've been talking about exactly this kind of situation unfolding. So my professional work also, I was already basically expecting this to happen. Um, and in the field of civilizational collapse and existential risk, 
there's always this question of like, why haven't, why are we all here still? <laughs> why haven't, why hasn't the whole thing come undone already? Um, and so in a way, I think I was uniquely positioned both because of the, the caregiving uh, and because of the, my professional focuses on these, these types of issues that as it started to unfold, I kind of, I felt a kind of stepping into it rather than an aversion to it and a stepping away from it. And of course I'm, I'm blessed to be in Vermont and to be, you know, economically fairly stable and in a situation of basically safety. And so I think those things allowed me to, to step in and, and that's the, I think reflection where I go in response to what you were saying also was that, yes, like for many of us, this can have the dimensions of a meditation retreat. Um, But for other people, it has the dimensions of uh, complete economic ruin (laughs) Uh, and complete uh, Maslow level one fear reactions to uh, disrupted supply chains of medical supplies. Um, and in India and East Africa, we're looking at something like one of the worst famines the world has ever seen coming in about six months, unless something's done about it. We've got the largest swarm of locusts possibly in history moving through East Africa, which is already going to destroy crops. And now farmers can't even be out there to, to plant and to tend, um, so there's a there's an unfolding situation that in one way can be compared to that we're on a meditation retreat, but in another way it's this is slightly different because um, the whole world is kind of encased in in something much more kind of uh, high stakes and um, collectively uh, dangerous. Um, so, so as much as I, I am suggesting people embrace the home and that they become uh, mindful and step into the transformative potential of this, it's very much with the intention so that they can step again or eventually out of the home back to the marketplace and into a situation to, so that when we do begin to reboot infrastructures, we can do it in such a way that all of a sudden we could save people in India from starving to death six months from now, right? As opposed to all having transformative <clears throat> experiences, but not finding a way to actually stop the cascading effects that are unfolding. And that's going to take cooperation and collective sense-making efforts um, and generosity and innovation at a global scale, the likes of which we basically haven't seen before. Uh, so <clears throat> in that sense, there's uh, the it's not just a project of self-realization that's at stake here. There's a project of civilizational salvation um, in the sense of, yeah, keeping, uh, keeping humanity um, alive and in a way that is livable in a way that we would want to continue to be and, uh, so yeah, so I'm holding that too in response because I, I feel both of them. I feel both a deepening of intimacy and a kind of enclosing in a kind of introversion and a kind of disappearance of identity. But I'm also feeling this call to kind of like into the Vajrayana kind of like expansion of those energies, a deepening of personality, a divination and a and a empowerment of human action and choice so that... Um, you know, 
the opposite of a quiescence, like a moving into a, into a speaking and doing that could, again, stop the largest famine in the world <laughs> has ever seen stop the United States from descending into something like uh, a civil war or a biomedical authoritarian regime. Um, you know, there's a lot of scenarios that are, because we're in the liminal, we're actually considering them. Right, because we're in the liminal, our imaginations are flooded with all of these potentialities, utopian and dystopian. And mostly the weight's tipped towards the dystopian at this point. Um, so whatever we can do at home to transform, we need to then find a way to bring back into the street and into the halls of power. And uh, um, yeah, that was a mouthful. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. I mean, first of all, Really beautiful rendering, Zach, and also thank you for your courage and, and, and transparency and sharing what you did around your right. That, that's really very personally moving to me. It, it, there's so much to, to just one little bit of commentary on. You, you know, the Kempo Kartar Rinpoche often talks about the, the so-called rebirth process, um, the bardo becoming is the bardo of possibility. Um, and I think, again, that's just a reiteration of the central narrative that is the most important thing I'm hearing here is how can we, in fact, transform obstacle into opportunity. But I want to start with your permission individually and then, and then transition um, culturally, socially. And, and that is how, both in your personal experience, you have a lot of, well, you know, lived experience that you can share with us. What kind of advice can you give to people that are new into the terrain that you've been ensconced in with so, in so many years in terms of avoiding burnout? Um, how, how does one care for oneself to better care for others? Because obviously, you know, it's, it's like when you're in an airplane, right? And their oxygen masks drop. The first thing they say is put the mask on yourself first. Um, and so we start where we are. We start with ourselves. So are you okay sharing with us some of your own coping strategies to avoid burnout, to keep your heart open when the default, the ego default is in fact defensive self-contraction? So what, what can you share with us along those lines from your own experience? Because I think a lot of people are really clamoring for guidance in terms of this uncharted territory. I mean, Bardo's by definition are unfamiliar. Um, and for someone who's been in that space, as you have, I'm sure our listeners would be um, very grateful of any advice you might have along coping mechanisms. Mm -hmm.